It's Isaiah and chapter 53. Isaiah is writing in probably the 8th century BC, the 700s before Christ. He's writing to a people who have disobeyed God and have been told that they are going into exile in Babylon. The people of God in the Old Testament, Israel, time and time again, have failed to love and worship the God who has set his love upon them. And the issue that Isaiah has raised is is he's promised this beautiful future, this glorious forgiveness, this wonderful paradise that he's going to take his people to, is how is he actually going to sort out the hearts of the people that he's going to take there? How is he going to deal with the fact that their disobedience deserves God's punishment? How is he going to change them from the inside out? And Isaiah 52, 13 through to 53, the end, is really answering that question. And it answers it with a a suffering servant, one who is fulfilled 700 years later in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read, uh, starting again at 52, verse 13, and read through to 53, verse 3. The Lord is speaking in 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. What do you want other people to think about you? I mean, how how do you want to be regarded at work, uh, amongst the other, the parents in the school playground, in your wider family? Or maybe more telling, what do you want people to think about your children or grandchildren? Because sometimes our desires for those who we love actually reveal more fully our hearts than what we think about ourselves. Now, I want to be liked. I want to be respected. I want to be thought of as successful. I I want people to want to talk to me, not to avoid me, to accept me, not reject me, to perceive me as strong, not weak, to admire me, Not to think I'm rather pathetic. And that's a problem when it comes to being a servant of the Lord. Because that's not the road the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, walked. He walked a very different path through life. We saw last week, as we started this servant song, that though he was high and exalted and lifted up, he became less than any other human being. He was battered and bruised and bloodied. 
And as we gazed upon the love of God revealed for us in the humiliation of his son, the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, we heard the message, we understood for ourselves, this was the way God had ordained to make us right with him, to restore the relationship of his people with the one who created them. And so as the, the second verse, if you like, of this servant song starts, it starts with a question. Uh, in 53 verse 1, it's not the Lord speaking anymore. No, no, the people speaking are the people who've understood that, that the suffering servant is the good news of God. And he, the Lord's called them to, to witness to the servant, to, to make the message known. And so they ask in chapter 53 verse 1, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the answer we first of all see is he is the unbelieved servant. The unbelieved servant. Because the expected answer to that question, who has believed our message, is no one. No one believes you. No one accepts what you say. That actually was the ministry that the prophet Isaiah had been given by God right back in chapter 6. God had said this, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Uh, Isaiah says the Lord, I'm, I'm sending you to confirm the remains of my people, the, the kingdom of Judah. You're going to confirm them in their unbelief. Judah are not going to respond to your preaching. The people are going to be hardened by what you say. No one believed the message of the servant. Even actually when the servant himself comes, the Lord Jesus, 700 years later, God's people refuse to believe him. So John records this in his gospel, John chapter 12. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then as the message of Jesus, the, the suffering servant, was taken out around to other Jews, uh, around and about by the Apostle Paul, what did he find? Well, he reflects in Romans chapter 10 and verse 16. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? You see, they would not believe that this servant was the way that God chose to save them. That this was... Verse 53, 53, verse 1, the arm of the Lord. And in one way, you can't blame them. Because the arm of the Lord in the Bible is the outworking of God's mighty strength. Uh, listen to how the arm of the Lord has been described so far in Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. Or the Lord himself says in Isaiah 50, verse 2. Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. Or just in the chapter before, Isaiah 52 verse 10. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. That is the arm of the Lord. But, but look what the arm of the Lord looked like when God rolled up his sleeves and got stuck into his world. 
he looked like, secondly, the unimpressive servant. This is what the arm of the Lord looked like. Chapter 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Have you ever seen one of those areas of cleared woodland? There's just mud and broken branches, and amidst the, the whole lot, there are stumps of trees, dead wood. And that, that was actually the picture that Isaiah had used earlier in the book to describe what his people would be like when the Lord brought judgment upon them, totally ravaged. But, but there would be a shoot, hope, in the midst of destruction. He, he said in chapter 6, verse 13, But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. And out of that stump will grow a, a shoot of new life. A little sight of hope in the, in the midst of despair, fragile, looking like it might be broken at any time. A baby born to a teenager in suspicious circumstances, with nowhere to sleep on the first night in the world, laid in a manger amongst the stinking animals. His parents forced to take him and flee to a foreign country before he was two years old, because a murderous king wanted to kill him. A tender shoot, a small piece of life in an otherwise spiritually dry and dead landscape. Not a mighty king, a preacher, not a warrior. No beauty, nothing in his appearance. And not that he was, he was ugly, but simply he was ordinary. You couldn't pick Jesus out in a crowd. As he grew up, if anything, he became less attractive. And people didn't see anything particularly special about him, even when they were standing right in front of him. That They weren't drawn to the suffering servant of the Lord by his Instagram posts. Now, even in his hometown, they weren't very impressed with him. Matthew 13 records this. The people said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Even Jesus' disciples were confused. They asked themselves, who is this man? A man who worked for a living, who became tired, who got hungry, who needed time on his own away from the crowd who wept at the death of his friend. I mean, surely this can't be the mighty arm of the Lord. That can't be the best God can do for his people. And so they rejected him. The unbelieved servant, the unimpressive servant, and the unwanted servant. That's verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Despised. Isaiah puts it twice in the verse. Do you see that? He was despised at the beginning. He was despised at the end. So we're left in no doubt. He was considered worthless, unworthy of attention, a man to be left alone. Or as John puts it at the beginning of his gospel, he was in the world, 
And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Rejected by mankind. At his birth, the king wanted to kill him. During his life, the religious leaders plotted his death. Even as he died, the people stayed on to mock him. I just realized that as we were reading our devotions as a family. I hope if you're a father here, you're using this time to get something like a book about the beauty of Easter written by Ed Drew, gathering your children around you, your grandchildren around you, and looking at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the run-up to Easter. But because I learned something as I did that with my kids this week, have you ever thought about this? They weren't just content to crucify him. They wanted to stand by and mock him when he died. It wasn't good enough that he was dead and gone. They wanted to stand and sneer. We read about it in Luke's gospel. Luke 23, verse 35, they said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. A loser, shunned by society. An embarrassment to those who claimed to be his friends. They ran away, hid their faces, deserted him, denied him. You see, we started last week in 52.13 with God's verdict on the servant. Lifted up, raised up, highly exalted. And at the end of verse 3, here's humanity's verdict. And we held him in low esteem. And we held him in low esteem. And we held him in low esteem. Because, of course, as we sing the song of Isaiah, we convict ourselves. You see, we want a mighty God who sorts out the problems of our lives as we perceive them now. But he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing that we should desire him. And we held him in low esteem. See, this is how we all naturally think of Jesus. Now, if you're like me, you can remember the time when you thought so little of him, you didn't even bother to think about him. He was so irrelevant, so unnecessary, so uninteresting. As one commentator said, in a world blinded by selfishness and power, he doesn't even merit a second thought. And we didn't believe Because we saw God's servant Jesus with the eyes of the world. It's the same reasons we can hide our faces from Jesus now. We just find it a bit embarrassing to be known as his. We we wince when we walk past those street preachers in the middle of Kingston. They're just a bit in your face. It can even be physically painful to talk about Jesus with, with colleagues at work or, or with friends or even with family. Or we, can, we can cross the pain barrier of mentioning we go to church, but to talk about Jesus, the one who suffered for us, just feels a step too far. You see, often when we, we come here, we sing that we hold him in high esteem, but a lot of the time we live as though we hold him in low esteem. It's the same reason that causes people to reject the church today. It seems so weak, so fragile. 
not very attractive, so incapable of dealing with the, the problems of the, the real world. Or we think we're contemporary when we play our already out-of-date music, but we're only fooling ourselves. We, we can't do the world better than the world. The world will always look on and think we are losers. But the great news is we don't have to do the world better than the world. Because if we try and save people with the world's wisdom, we will always fail. Because the Lord has chosen that his strong arm, his mighty means of salvation, is a suffering servant. You see, the first thing is that we see that in this unbelieved, this unoppressive, this unwanted servant is the Lord's strength to save. 53.1 again. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Has been revealed. You see, people don't believe on their own. They don't see the servant. He is revealed to them. Actually, the arm of the Lord is so strong that he opens blind eyes. He gives understanding to dull minds. He breaks into hard hearts. The message of the servant is powerful and effective. It is the Lord's means of salvation. If you doubt it, have a look around the world today and you'll see millions of people gathering this Lord's Day to worship this weak and lowly man. You'll see lives transformed forever by the gospel of this servant. You'll see that this servant, the Lord Jesus, is the focus of all God's mighty acts, the one through whom every promise of God is fulfilled. And through him, God is doing his greatest work ever. He is gathering the people he loves. He is, through the preaching of the message of the servant, saving lives. This is the power of God, and this is the wisdom of God. If you're a Christian, you are a testimony to the message of the servant. That in the weakness of Jesus, you have seen God's strength. That in the defeat of Jesus, you have seen God's victory. That in the condemnation of Jesus, you have seen your forgiveness. That in the pain of Jesus, you have known your healing. And in the suffering of Jesus, you have seen your hope. The saving arm of the Lord has been revealed to you. Rejoice in it. And if you're not yet a Christian here this evening... Well, a great thing to to do is maybe to pray to the God you're not sure about and say to him, Lord, please reveal why the people around me are so obsessed with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the servant has been made known by the Lord. We might not have desired God, but God has so desired us that he has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the glory, God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ, the bloodied, suffering, servant face of Jesus Christ. And God's glory is most beautifully seen in his humility. 
You see, he's the Lord's strength to save, but he's also the Lord's humility and obedience. Verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot. He, that's the arm of the Lord, grew up before him, the Lord. You see, the servant is one both who is both God and who also grows up before God. He is one who is divine, the Lord, and he is one who develops as a man. As the hymn writer Charles Wesley put it, let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree, to praise in songs divine, the incarnate deity, our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. This is the God who stoops to save, who becomes like us, ordinary, fully human, so that he might save us to become like him, extraordinary, glorious forever. He humbles himself so we might be exalted. He experiences earth so we might enjoy heaven. And so the writer of the Hebrews can can say of Jesus in Hebrews 2.17, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of of the people, fully human in every way. That's what Isaiah is saying. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. No beauty, no majesty, just an ordinary human being. And so do you understand that this evening? That your God has drawn so near that you might know him. That the one who made all things and rules all things, and controls all things, and gives life to all things, comes close. He he takes on flesh so that people might touch him. He, He pours his fullness into a man so that we might see in Jesus the compassion and the tenderness and the love that is at the heart of the God who created us. He has revealed his glory in humility so that we might draw close to him as he draws close to us. Fully human in every way. Fully human in every way. Because the third thing that Isaiah shows us here is the Lord who suffers and so sympathizes. Because Isaiah 53 verse 3 has become a verse precious to probably millions of Christians over the centuries. Isaiah 53 verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, though many people here want to say, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom their people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. To know that Jesus was a man of sorrows, uh, the the word actually in in verse 3, the word familiar has the sense of no personally. It speaks of experience. He was familiar with pain. He was acquainted with grief. He experienced it. See, God himself, in the incarnation, experiences through Christ's human nature what it was to live like a man. Jesus fought temptation. So the Lord knows what it is to battle tiredness, to feel sorrow, to know grief to be left in loneliness, to be betrayed by one's friends, to be bullied, 
to be lied about, to be verbally and physically abused, to be blank and belittled, to die as a man. See, we follow him in the midst of our pain and suffering, and we find that he is a sympathetic high priest. Not just that picture of a high priest as a man in heaven on our side, a man who's with God for us, but more than that, a God who walks our road and who's felt our pain. There's no one like him. There is no one like him. And as we seek to be servants of this servant, as we seek to follow him, we walk in his footsteps. And that's such good news for us tonight. Because it means, firstly, we simply need to proclaim the message. We preach, he reveals. That's the Lord's power in the servant. There can be a danger, can't we, that that we think we need a a sophisticated, a a highbrow, an intellectually admired Christianity, a message that looks good to the world. But people aren't saved by the power of our arguments. People are not saved by the persuasive nature of our philosophical thought. Though it is good to know some of the Bible's answers to questions of life. No, in the end, people are saved by the message of the servant, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who is the mighty arm of the Lord. Salvation is seen powerfully in his humility. We preach, he reveals. And God reveals how? By using ordinary people. That was what the servant was like. Now, that's great news. Well, we don't need a showy and glamorous church. And frankly, looking out on us this evening, that's good news, isn't it? We don't need the heroes of our culture to become Christians. We don't need the sports stars and the pop stars and the royal stars to believe in Jesus so he is more attractive to the world. And what happens when we take those people and their fragile faith and parade them before the world, we're basically saying Jesus isn't good or beautiful enough. We don't need them. No, we need the plumbers and the teachers and the health visitors and the college students and the stay-at-home mums and the technicians and the retired. We need ordinary people like the people we are. And that is who the Lord uses to proclaim this message of the servant. Ordinary people who experience the usual suffering that goes with life in this world. Because, in fact, God uses our suffering to equip us to help others. So Paul, writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1, says that God comforts us in all our troubles so we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. Did you know the most powerful testimony that there is? It's a life where grace has been sufficient in a very ordinary person going through pretty standard suffering. A life of weakness that displays power. A life of, of pain that shows that we trust a God who loves us. And that is how God has chosen to make his mighty arm known in the world. How he has chosen to save people for himself. That's how he did it through his servant. And that's how he does it through the servants of the servant. We saw in 1 Corinthians 1 a few weeks ago this. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. 
But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What do you want people to think of you? What attitude do you want people to have towards you? I just wonder if we're afraid. Well, let me say, I know that I'm afraid of becoming a church like my Savior, a church like our Savior, a church like Jesus, a foolish, weak, lowly, despised church, a nothing church. But this is the way the Lord's servant saved us. And this is how we show his salvation to others. So let's boast only in the Lord, the Lord who became the suffering servant for us. A moment's quiet, and we'll pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that by nature, we don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not impressed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and we don't want the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you so much that that message of the servant has been revealed to us, so that we have seen in his weakness your mighty strength in salvation. And we thank you so much that you've shown us that you've drawn close in the person of your son that he was fully man and fully God and in an ordinary human life he was obedient in the way that we never are so that he might die in our place and you have made precious to us the one who suffered that means that we have a God who knows what it is to, to live as a man to, to struggle as a person, to experience sorrow and pain and grief. We have a sympathetic high priest. Our Father, tonight we thank you for our man of sorrows, for our beautiful Savior, for our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you'd help us uh, to walk as he walked, for his name's sake. Amen.